Hey there, and welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. I hope you are doing well and having a great week. Today's episode is with a functional podiatrist. Her name is Dr. Emily Splickle. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've actually heard me interview a lot of functional medical practitioners. So uh, functional medicine physicians, um, more than one functional naturopathic dentist, um, functional nutritionists. The term functional, you know, to us, I think to most of you listening and to myself, it makes a lot of sense when they explain that basically what they're doing is they are trying to look at whatever their their client or patient's issue or challenge is by looking at the entire picture, the whole person, all of the systems that go into play to make a person's body work, right? So it's never just my foot hurts and it's my foot problem or I have gut health issues and it's just my gut. It's always about everything. Um, And in this case, what I'm learning from Dr. Emily Splickle is that foot problems can often be related to um, certainly posture, but things like pelvic health, which is something you guys know I feel pretty strongly about and I've talked about in previous podcasts, even in jaw um, and mouth function, these things are all connected and they're connected in a a really direct physiological way that we just aren't really aware of. Um, And so that's kind of what we talk about in this, this episode, but we talk about how someone like Dr. Emily would um, take a client and work at determining what the underlying causes are for any kind of pain that they may be having. And some functional things, some mobility things, some strengthening things for your feet that can help um, fix some issues. As we know, it's not just about your feet, but certainly there are things we can be doing. There are things we're doing wrong. And as you probably already know, a lot of it has to do with footwear and the the ways that we sort of cover up our feet and um, make it harder for our body to kind of gather information from our movement and the way we walk. We talk about some ways that we can encourage babies and toddlers and you know younger people to um, move through the world in a more natural way. Because as we know, we start out pretty healthy and sorted with some pretty good movement patterns and somewhere along the line, we mess it up. So we talk about all this stuff. I, of course, selfishly ask some questions about my own issues. And it looks like it I may actually be working um, with Dr. Emily moving forward, and I think it would be really cool to have her back on to talk about the process uh, of working with someone like her and the intake process and the things that she found and the things that we addressed. So I very likely will have her back on um, in a matter of months after we've kind of worked together and worked on some of my challenges and see how it goes. I know it will be, of course, beneficial for me, but I hope that it would be beneficial for you guys as well. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope you get some some tangible, usable information out of it. Of course, I'm going to put all of her information in the show notes. You can follow her and learn more about her and from her. And without further ado, here is my interview with the amazing Dr. Emily Splickle. Dr. Emily Splickle. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. I have a lot of probably selfish questions that I want to ask you about my own health and feet. Um, But before I even dive into, I don't really know where to start. So I feel like a good place to start might be if you could please um, just tell the listeners a little bit about what a functional podiatrist does. Yeah, absolutely. So functional podiatry is looking at the feet from a very integrated perspective. So I appreciate how our feet are going to influence the pelvic floor, uh, how the pelvic floor then influences hip strength, hip stability, the way that we breathe. I mean, it goes all the way up to even grip strength. Mm -hmm. So I really look at that functional integration of the human foot from a biomechanical perspective, a sensory perspective, and then a fascial perspective. Uh, And then even on top of that, even more, I look at stress levels, diet, sleep patterns. Um, I really try to factor in everything. So it's that combination of functional movement with functional medicine, then blending into functional podiatry. 
I love that. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously we're in, in a very kind of specialized health world where a functional approach to anything makes sense. Like it just sounds like common sense when I hear it, but we still, I think have a medical industry that is not that way generally. So, um, but my first thought when you're explaining this type of work is how do you know, like where to start? Like if I were to come to you because, and I'll just throw in a real life thing here. Like I had a baby, you mentioned the pelvic floor thing. I think that's so fascinating because I've had some sort of hip issues that I think have been exacerbated a little bit, um, postpartum. Oh, are you still there? You froze. Emily, are you still there? Oh, I think we we froze for a minute, but could you hear me that whole time? Uh, somewhat. I don't know if you want to reword it. From yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start again. I just want to make sure that we're not going to get cut off here. My, my internet's good. Um, it should be as well. Okay. Well, that's what editing's for. That's why we don't do this live. Okay. <clears throat> so if I were to come to you as a client and I'm complaining of um, some hip and lower back pain, and I'm telling you that, you know, I had a baby eight months ago and it's, it's a, it's a pain that's kind of recurring, but it's worse now. Um, like, where would you start in evaluating what the issues are? Yes. Yeah, so I always look at every patient, of course, understanding their foundation. So their feet doing a open chain and a closed chain foot assessment. Assessment, understand do they have by structure a stable foundation, a more rigid foundation? And then I always do a movement assessment, which involves gait. And then I am listening to the patient and kind of their experiences, their injury history. You know, you gave birth eight months ago. So obviously, I'm appreciating and factoring in how deeply integrated the feet are with the core and that foot to core sequencing and pathway I find in almost every single one of my patients that is relevant, that it's there. Um, I will assess your breathing patterns. If you are very supra diaphragmatic versus being more below the belly or below the diaphragm breathing pattern, then I know that there is that kind of diaphragm core aspect to it as well. And then um, my recommendations are always something to the feet, something to the pelvis, something to the T-spine. So those three areas, I need to make sure that they're sufficiently mobile and then sufficiently stable. And then to kind of add in even more or to seal it in or the cherry on top, whatever, is I always then bring sensory stimulation in. And that sensory stimulation is how we relate to the ground and gravity. So I'm all about, you know, barefoot stimulation, weighted vests, uh, wrist weights, things that are weight so that people can then reconnect or recalibrate to really how we orientate when we stand up and move. Hmm. Okay. I still, I have so many questions. I, I'm having a hard time. Okay. I'm going to ask you maybe just some like random questions and we'll see if it, totally gets, go ahead. Yeah. If it gets, becomes cohesive. So I have been told in the past that obviously, you know, there's some trends towards like barefoot running, barefoot style shoes, um, just encouraging to yourself to like walk around barefoot more than like these really heavily padded footwear, right? And I understand that it makes sense for most people to move into that space gradually, right? You don't go from wearing like high heels and padded sneakers every day to like barefoot all day long, right? Um, But is there um, benefit to like, say you're working from home and you live in a house that's all like hardwood, like very hard flooring. Is there an amount of barefoot walking on like unnaturally hard surfaces that's detrimental? Like, should there then be like some kind of counterbalance to that? Yes. So the way that I think of this, that should help you and the listeners is that when we think about feet, footwear, and surfaces is that we want to have this symbiotic relationship, kind of a a balanced give and take relationship that you want the surface to be slightly forgiving, but also providing sensory stimulation. Um, So let me kind of weave into something else and hopefully it'll answer your question is that every time we walk and we strike our foot on the ground, right? We're experiencing impact forces. Those impact forces are being perceived as vibration. Okay. So this vibrational 
stimuli is entering our feet with every step we take. Now, this is where that symbiotic relationship comes in, is that when we strike the surface, you want the surface to vibrate and you vibrate at the same time. So for those that are watching the video, I'm kind of doing something with my hands that there's this kind of mutual compression and then reverberation into each other. That is how we want it to be. Now, certain surfaces do not vibrate the same way. Um, wood, dirt, grass, natural surfaces vibrate in this symbiotic way, which is why people may find that it's better to do exercises on a hardwood floor or a dance studio, a group exercise studio, or running on trails. Okay? Some of the surfaces that are not forgiving are concrete. Asphalt's a little bit better than concrete, but tile, marble, things that people will have in their homes, which is coming back to your question a little bit. And what happens when you're on those surfaces is that you strike the surface, it does not vibrate. So you get this back reverberation into your body. And then we start to overstress or fatigue our system on how we absorb that stress or that stimuli. Okay. And there is what's called a tissue stress threshold. Everybody has their own unique tissue stress threshold. Your foot type can greatly affect that, meaning someone with overpronation and flat feet is going to have a lower stress threshold mm. than someone who has a neutral, mobile, stable, strong foot. Right. So then that's where if someone's saying, well, I know barefoot's good, but I walk around barefoot in my home, especially with COVID, we were all staying home. So they're just spending more time possibly barefoot in their home, walking around and then starting to get plantar fasciitis, you know, some heel pain, things like that. And that's essentially saying that this surface foot relationship and the stress that it's creating has shifted more towards that threshold. And now your tissue is starting to talk to you. Um, different ways that I try to balance that is through foot mobility, foot strengthening, and then understanding how to balance maybe certain footwear with that barefoot environment. Okay. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the mobility and strengthening, but first, um, one of the things that I read on your, uh, Instagram, because you, you put out a lot of great information on social media. Um, I think it, it, it said that by like three or four, uh, toddlers, like young kids sort of have their mature gait. Is that, is that accurate? So basically the way you're going to walk for the rest of your life is kind of established by around that age. Is that right? Yeah. So it takes about to age three, four, again, you can see it earlier in some children, but age three, four, you will then have this mature heel toe gait pattern, right? Where some children may still toe walk a little bit or be more turned out, just kind of the, the patterning of that foot strike might be a little bit off. Now that's important to know because also the peak window of neuroplasticity is until about the age of four. So from newborn to four, so this is for your eight month old is all sensory, sensory, sensory neuroplasticity. You're trying to wake up the brain, wake up the brain cognitively, emotionally movement wise. Right. So all of that is being developed. And then it kind of hits that not peak, because it's continuously happening, but just that massive window by that age of four. And that's where we're seeing, okay, this is their mature gait pattern. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's see, of course that's topical for me because I feel like my son is going to start getting up pretty quick. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's trying to totter around like 10 or 11 months. And so my question is, what are some things we can do as parents of young kids to support this like optimal movement pattern? Cause you know, I, I, we always talk about like, look at toddlers and how they squat and how they move. And it's so natural and perfect and effortless, but obviously we are doing some things along the line that are sort of promoting less optimal movement patterns and things like that. So what are some things we can do for these like young, young toddlers to really get them set up for success? My biggest one is going to be keep them barefoot <laughs> as long as you can. No shoes for these children, especially, you know, the age of your son is 
really important because they're starting to now stand up, take steps. That's kind of that final stage of gravitational awareness. So we want them to be able to um, feel the ground and feel how their feet connect to their vestibular system and their visual system. So trying to have that as much as you can. Um, my daughter, who's two, was barefoot until 18 months. She literally did not own any shoes, had never put on shoes until she was 18 months. And the only reason we put shoes on is that it was too cold and she couldn't be at the park mm -hmm. with shoes on. Um, but now when she goes to the park, she's at the park, she takes her shoes off right away. And we only get very flexible shoes. A thick structured sneaker for a toddler is very counter to what our nervous system wants. And the child inherently will shift towards that if you give them a choice and you allow them that opportunity to just connect inherently to their own self. Mm -hmm. They will most likely either want to be barefoot or want the flexible shoe and try to feel and connect to their foundation. Okay. All right. No shoes. Yeah. I live in a cold place too. So it's, it, it's actually working out very well that now that he's like starting to become more upright, it's getting warmer so we can like get, keep any socks and shoes and all of that stuff off him. So I'm looking forward to this summer and seeing how that goes. Um, it seems like in my experience, nobody, of course, nobody's sort of frame and gait and movement patterns and everything are perfect. Most of us don't make it to adulthood moving perfectly and pain-free, unfortunately. Um, but it seems like in my experience, it's like everyone is either like overpronated or their toes are pointing out or they've got one or they're flat-footed. There's like, there's always an issue that in many cases, um, companies want to fix with things like orthotics or, or special shoes or whatever. Are orthotics in some cases useful or necessary, or is it always better to like try to just build up strength and mobility? I'm so glad you asked that question because I, uh, as a barefoot advocate, a functional podiatrist, I want everyone to be bringing in barefoot stimulation every day. I think that people should have at least 30 minutes of barefoot sensory stimulation at a minimum every day. However, I will then see patients who will take that to the extreme and think that even though they have a ligament laxity and a history of posterior tibial tendonitis and maybe a large bunion and things like that, that they can still achieve that minimal barefoot optimal position and could even potentially build an arch back into that foot. So they're kind of this outlier and I eventually see them as patients because they get hurt <laughs> trying to do it. And I then try to educate them on the differences in our structure, in our connective tissue, in our inherent strength, in our injury history, and the stressors that we put under our feet and understand that if we are one of those outliers or 1%, it's okay. You didn't fail right? If you can't wear minimal shoes and you believe in that philosophy so much, then we just need to accept that at certain times we do need a little bit more support because of our unique foot type and it's okay, right? And we shift that way. So as a functional podiatrist, I try to not be very polar or biased in what I'm recommending. Um, as a physician, I don't think that, I mean, bias is an inherent human trait. <laughs> we are all subconsciously biased, but I try to not be biased or very polar in my recommendations because there are the few exceptions that do not or should not be in minimal shoes or barefoot all day in their home. And it's because of a, a you know, myriad of reasons. And then I educate the patient or the individual on why that is. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just the one thing that I think is really important for your listeners to understand is that it's amazing to be minimal and natural, but there's just a few exceptions to that. And if that's you, it's okay. We'll find a balance between the two. And there's no like one rule that's going to work for everybody. And you can take, I mean, this goes for, for, exercise, nutrition, everything, you can take any healthy practice too far and then it becomes problematic, which is something that some of us tend to do. We get a little overzealous, a little excited and maybe go too far with things. Um, 
I'd love to talk about the connection with the pelvic floor and foot health, because obviously this is something that's like fresh in, in my mind right now, because I do believe that maybe some of this like weakening that happened in my core that I'm trying to build back now is contributing to some added pain and that I'm dealing with, but how just across the board in general, how do these two kind of systems connect to each other? So fascially is how they connect Okay, the way that our feet fascially connect to the pelvic floor is through what's called the deep front fascial line. And, um, for the listeners, uh, anatomy trains would be a great way to understand the fascial lines. Uh, the deep front line is a very deep postural muscular fascial line within the body. And it runs from the tips of the toes, the bottom of the foot, the lower leg, your inner thigh, which is your adductors into your pelvic floor to your diaphragm. And then it even runs up your neck to your palate. So we actually build stability from the tips of our toes to our tongue. And I will teach people how to activate that soft tissue skeleton is what I consider a soft tissue skeleton, which is your foundation through which all the other muscles contract. So before these larger muscles that we love to train and that we can see and touch, we need the internal postural skeleton to be contracting to stabilize the others. Um, Now this toe to tongue pathway is sequenced. And I teach that sequence where if I cue you to push your toes down into the ground, which is called short foot, the exercise, your toes push down. As you do that, I actually want you lifting the pelvic floor and the part of the pelvic floor that connects to our feet is actually the posterior pelvic floor. So a lot of people think pelvic floor, Kegel, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to have urinary incontinence. Like I jump and I I pee, right? So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, especially the pregnancy, post-pregnancy association, but it's actually much more into that posture pelvic floor. The posture pelvic floor is your levator, A and I, the action is obviously lifting. That's what the muscle does. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will tell people, stop your poo Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do that. So we would want to push the toes down and lift that levator ani at the same time and just kind of feel that as step one coordination. And I'm doing it as I'm sitting here. I'm trying to do it too. I'm like, (laughs) keep doing it, right? Lift the, lift your levator ani as your toes go down, lift, right? So we're just kind of building this rhythm. I say it's saying hello to the pelvic floor and the feet. Once you get that, then you want to start to add in the diaphragm through the breath. And what that would be is the toes go down, your levator ani goes up, and you would exhale. Okay. Okay. So you would exhale and then release. Exhale and then release. I go shh, release, shh, release, shh, release. (laughs) But after your next layer, okay. Now to go even higher. Instead of focusing on the exhale, we're going to focus on the tongue to the palate. So you're going to push your toes down, lift the levator ani. Now just hold there for a moment and then put your tongue to your palate. And when you do that, you should feel that you get this extra little bump, like an extra lift or a tension or a stiffness or a stability. So that's the way that you can start to say hello, activate or wake up this toe tongue foot to core, pelvic floor breath, um, sequencing or stacking, which I use as either movement prep. So you want to prepare the myofascial system for the exercises you are about to do, or for the physical therapy you're going to do, or for like, for you, I would say to do this, you know, in the morning when you are getting ready right? Just do a few repetitions of this to posturally wake up your system because when we sleep, everything goes to Mm -hmm. sleep. So you want to wake it up. So you are ready for picking up your baby in various random positions and just kind of, you know, re-entering into that functional uh, place now that you've given birth or your, your postpartum. Mm -hmm. So that that's a way that I would start to explore that obviously it becomes very diverse after that, but that is kind of the core foundational principle that I teach every single one of my patients is that foot strength is not 
separated over here and then core stability is over here. They have to be talking to each other and that the breath is the driver to stability. That is really your driver that I need you to be focusing on. Not you, but everyone. (laughs) And this of course applies to men as well, right? I think a lot of times people are under the misconception that pelvic health is only for women. And while it certainly, we kind of have maybe some extra challenges due to childbirth and all of those things. I mean, men have pelvic floors and men need to focus on this stuff as well, right? 100%. And for the listeners to think of, oh, is my pelvic floor strong or not? Some of the injuries that we actually see that are actually related to pelvic floor weakness, imbalance, dysfunction, uh, whichever word you want to use would be uh, groin pain. Athletic pubelgia is an actual um, injury to the abdominal fascia, adductor strains, adductor spasms, hip labral tears, SI joint pain, low back pain, uh, restricted hip mobility, that and that's just in the pelvis, then I could go into all of the foot stuff. And then we start to get a lot of issues. Um, Runner's knee is a big one, IT band syndrome, because everything has to do with timing of stabilization. So when we move, we need to be stabilizing very quickly because impact and energy is entering our body very quickly. If we cannot stabilize faster than the energy is coming in, you're going to experience stress somewhere in your body. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, how much of this issue, like these general kind of pain and instability issues did you think are um, a result of what well, we're talking about, like breath and core and stabilization, but um, like muscle imbalances, because there's a lot of talk, I feel like in pelvic floor issues in, in like exercise related injuries about muscles either being too tight or too lax or too, too weak. And it seems like it's usually like the competition or like the imbalance between like some muscles being too strong and some being not strong enough and some taking too much work and all of this stuff. So is that something that is kind of a, a key factor here is that because of maybe improper or suboptimal movement patterns, we get these imbalances and that's causing an issue. Yeah, the biggest muscle imbalance that I actually see is what's called a global, a global muscle are these large ones. So a global versus local, local will be these deeper, smaller stabilizers imbalance. So Mm -hmm. that uh, as far as all muscle imbalances go, that would be the most common that I see. That's also the classification system that I use would say, okay, you are globally dominant. You are engaging your glutes before your deep hip stabilizers, right? So if your gemelline obturators are not engaging with your pelvic floor before your glutes, your hip is not stable and you're going to start jamming and shifting that femoral head in the joint. And now you have a hip labral uh, tear or something like that, right? So I look at that as one of the most common muscle imbalances. Of course, there's, you know, pec minor versus, you know, other stabilizers, uh, anterior pelvis versus posterior pelvis. So we start to see other ones in the body. I find that a lot of them, you could go all the way back to global versus local imbalance. And that we are very good at engaging our global muscles. Athletes are very good at engaging their global muscles because they understand that sensation. They're kind of the power drivers, right? They're getting massive glute activation. And sometimes I think, are we getting higher and higher glute activation at the cost of the deeper stabilizer? Mm-hmm. And that's why I always try to um, guide people to either increase the stress more gradually or to also understand that when we're learning a skill and doing, you know, a athletic movement, as an example, I try to get people to be moving fascially versus muscularly. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you an example that will maybe connect it for the listeners. Um, so actually I'll give you two examples. One is like kettlebells. I don't know if you do kettlebells and I'm sure some of the listeners do kettlebells. I love them, right? It's a very momentous based movement, right? It's a skill that is based off of you finding the momentum. It is fascial. Someone, you always see them at the gym learning to do kettlebells and they are lifting it. it, Mm -hmm. So they're moving muscularly. 
Okay. Other example is, so I do aerials as my fitness, my movement is aerials. So if I, if I'm learning a new skill on the silks or the straps, because I'm so conscious, cognitive in it, right. I'm thinking, okay, do this, move it here. I'm really engaging muscularly. I'm doing that entire skill muscularly Mm -hmm. when we move muscularly because we're very conscious of our movements you then start to stress the muscle tendon junction because you are working harder than you should be so a lot of tendonitis tendinopathies are related to your working harder you're using these muscles in in a way that is more engaged than they should be Mm -hmm. right Versus when I feel confident, I'm not conscious. Okay, then I can move through it with just more like muscle memory and it becomes more fascial, more effortless, less energy is put out. And that's the way that we want all of our athletes moving. Everyone, regardless of what you're doing. That's a tough sell though, for a number of reasons, because as you said, a lot of athletes, first of all, are just more comfortable and um, familiar with stuff that's working these big global muscles. Right. And I know like I've even experienced this during pregnancy and postpartum and going to a pelvic PT and following some of these people on Instagram and stuff. And some of the exercises they're showing, it's like, you're barely moving, right. It's about breathing and, and bringing your mind to this tiny little muscle or whatever, which is like, frankly, to a lot of people kind of boring and seems unproductive, even if it isn't right. So it's a very hard sell to tell, like, especially some of these like hard charging athletes who are used to just like doing squats all day, like just sit and connect with your breath and try to find that tension in the, whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a tough sell. So how do we, how can we apply this? It's one thing to, to go to you as a professional and have you walk us through some exercises, but how can like an, an average, you know, uh, athletic person who likes working out and playing sports, how can they kind of apply this to the, to their own workouts to maybe hopefully create less of a, of an imbalance and, and avoid injury. Yeah. So that, that, which I totally understand the whole boring thing. I get that. So we have to, you know, weave it in, in a way that is kind of either a smaller time frame, So they still get the other aspect or focusing on body weight movements or, um, lighter weights, lighter, lighter load, mm-hmm. higher repetition. And some of it can also be just the way that they're executing the skill or the repetition. Um, if you are used to doing heavy weights, Olympic lifting type movements, doing cross training with, let's say kettlebells, steel mace, Indian clubs, those become more fascial now. So that could be a way that there's still load and resistance, but it's allowing the athlete to connect to the fascial side. Um, when I speak about fascial movement, I want people to be strong, but relaxed. You never want to show it on your face. Your face is very calm, even though you're working really hard. Um, isometrics are actually very fascial. So doing isometrics, even with load, right? You could be lifting a heavy weight and doing something isometric, but then hold the isometric contraction and somehow relax into it and get into the deeper stabilizers. Then uh, let me take an anti-rotation. Anti-rotation is going to, or like a Pavlov press, right? So the anti-rotation, so it's isometric, I'm holding it. But instead of doing that and really like, I'm going to squeeze my obliques and squeeze my glutes as hard as I can, could I instead engage my feet and my pelvic floor and lift and find scapular stabilization, tongue to palate, and just let go just a little bit the global muscles and relax in that anti-rotation. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. It it is, that is kind of speaking a little bit to some of the stuff that I've been doing, um, postpartum, which is honestly, some of it is just being told by enough intelligent people that it's like the path to you getting back to your strength is not trying to bust your ass like six weeks in and do exactly the same things you did a year ago. Right. It's about almost, it's like getting back to the foundational strength and like, feeling muscle contraction again and time under tension and like doing things really slowly and properly instead of just trying to like rush in and, you know, guns blazing. Right. And I really do. I, I credit a lot of my relatively quick healing and the fact that I am feeling so close to normal again with doing this kind of work, this kind of patient, mindful work. And I do think that it's something that 
everyone would benefit from certainly postpartum women, but everybody, because especially those of us who are used to we're athletic people or, or athletes who are just in the gym or working out all the time, it's very easy to turn onto autopilot and to not really be paying attention to what you're doing. Um, and then you're wasting your time, right? Like if you can go back to these foundational principles and when you're in the gym, be thinking about your breath and your core and your pelvic floor and stability all the time, you are building more strength if you're just going in and kind of like half-assing, half on your phone, throwing some weight around, right? Um, but I, I don't know. I wonder if it's just like a maturity thing. Like you have to get to a certain point, maybe get maybe get mildly injured once before you decide that this is the the approach. I don't know. I would hope that some of the people listening will will pick up on this stuff before they have to, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the um, the mobility and strength stuff that all of us just generally speaking can work on with our feet because I've seen some things that you, you talk about like the toe spacers, which I feel like mm-hmm. I need to get some of those because I cannot for the life of me spread my toes. It's bad. And I haven't worn like high heels or crappy shoes in like probably a decade. And I still cannot move my feet, my toes. It's terrible. Yeah. I'm pretty obsessed with toe spacers, uh, which is so funny because they're just this little silly thing you slide on your feet, but they are definitely quite trendy right now, but very quite beneficial. So from a foot mobility perspective, what I have people do is use toe spacers. Um, At Naboso, we have the Naboso Splay, which are a brand of toe spacers. And the spreading and opening of the digits is what that does is it's stretching all of the small muscles in the front of the foot, the fascia, it's opening up. So from a circulatory perspective, that's good as well. If you are in constrictive shoes or you wear cleats or skates, just from maybe you're doing a sport, makes sense. Do the opposite when you get out of that. Uh, If people have hammer toes, bunions, or neuromas, good, obvious, right? Stretch it, spread it but also plantar fascia, plantar fasciitis, because our plantar fascia, which starts in our heel, comes up and it splits into five pieces that inserts onto the base of each toe. So you actually stretch your plantar fascia when you use toe spacers. So to me, that is one of the most beneficial ones because of the prevalence of plantar fascial stress and heel pain. So that's where we get it. Also, it supports uh, what's called the lever. So the lever is... If you do a calf raise and you look at your foot, that's a lever. Mm -hmm. It's how you push off and you release energy when we walk and when we jump, when we run that lever across all MPJs or the digits, you want it to be very stable and the digits should be long, straight and flat on the ground. So toe spacers reinforce that toe spacers can be used in your shoes when working out, when you're barefoot as a form of recovery. So all of the above, they are incredible for that. Can you overuse those too? Like, could I, if I like use them all day long when I'm at home with my shoes off, is that okay? No, it's totally fine. Okay. Totally fine. Yeah. I mean, some people, it eventually just gets a little annoying and then mm-hmm. they take them off. Yeah. Um, another great recovery is a uh, release to the feet. And at Nabosa, we have the neural ball, which is a ball that splits into two domes. So you'll stand on this, you'll split into two pieces, you two, two halves. And then we have a five minute foot release. The foot release is obviously massaging the muscles doing SMR or trigger point release, but uh, trigger point release can also improve the balance in people. So if people have a little bit of uh, balance issues, it also improves circulation. So anything that improves circulation supports recovery because you need to obviously get the blood flowing to flush out the area. Um, So those are my two big ways to release the feet or to improve mobility in the feet, toe spacers and a five minute foot release. And those are easy to do. Brush your teeth, release your feet. Mm -hmm. How about a, like, cause I know most of us have one of these hanging around our house, like a lacrosse ball. And sometimes you'll kind of like roll your feet. Like, is that helpful too? kind of a similar vibe? Yes. So what I recommend and part of why we developed the neural ball with the domes is that you actually get a better release when you do pinpoint pressure. When you roll on the foot, especially with quite a bit of pressure, you can create this guarding response. So it contracts your response against that pressure, Mm -hmm. which then is doing the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. So uh, we have some videos on YouTube where it's showing five points 
that you want to put the, the ball and it would, you would go to each point, five points on the foot, stay there for 30 seconds, go to position two, 30 seconds, and then you go through the different areas. Um, if you have a lacrosse ball and you say, oh, I don't have a neural ball, then obviously I want you to release your feet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, do what you can with what you have. Um, even, you know, I used to love using just a weight. So like a dumbbell, think like a five pound dumbbell and stand on the handle of it to get a release to the feet. And again, at that, I would do pinpoint pressure, stay there for 30 seconds, move the foot a little bit, stay there for 30 seconds and do a release that way. Okay. All right. So you talked a little bit about mobility and I'm going to ask some more questions about that in terms of like ankle mobility too, because sometimes what we think of as maybe a foot mobility thing is actually ankle, or maybe it's you have tight calves. And again, it leads me back to this question. I get, I find myself asking over and over again, is like, where do you start when you have probably a host of, of, of issues? Um, but I have felt in the past that like, I, I, I suffer from like kind of some hyper laxity issues as well as some tightness. So like my adductors are like very hypermobile to a fault that I think is probably um, contributing to some of my issues. And I think like you were saying this global versus local, I definitely have some of those problems too. Um, but I think it's contributing to some tightness in my ankle and calves. And I do like my feet, I do the, like, um, like I'm, I'm putting my weight on the outsides of my feet. Like if I'm just standing there. So like, what are some things I can do to either, I don't know if it's a, do I need to start with strengthening first? Is there probably some mobility things? Am I, what am I doing? Like, how do I, how do I even begin to, to figure out what my issue is? Yes. Yeah, so when I look at a patient's feet, right, I want to have, I want to make sure that they have an awareness on where they stand. Um, and this goes with everything from your feet, to your body, to your pelvis, to your posture is we have to have an accurate awareness to this is straight. This is forward. This is supinated. This is pronated, things like that. Um, once I establish that and then teach you, let's say what a foot tripod is. So you're under the first, the fifth, the heel toes are spread wide. They're on the ground. We kind of get you into a neutral position. Um, if you happen to be, let's say pronated, which is actually more common than what you present as you're saying you're on the outside. So it's more supinated, mm -hmm. more pronated. There's this coupled internal rotation of the tibia. So I will often have to teach them that they have to spiral the tibia and the leg out, mm -hmm. which is coming from the hips. So they'll fill it all the way into the glutes, find neutral. So I need a neutral rear foot. Then I find your tripod and I spread the digits. And then I just put a little bit of postural tone into the, the toes and the pelvic floor. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just teaching you that that's what neutral is. Right. Yes. Then I start to look at, are there more um, tendencies towards muscle dominance in one side versus another, mm -hmm. right? Um, the ankle that you had mentioned let's say I'm doing, I can assess the ankle, both open chain and closed chain and say, okay, I see that it's quite restricted, but I actually want to look at it during movement. So I want to see someone squat. I want to see someone walk. And I'm looking at the ankle movements and the compensation around the ankle when they squat and when they walk to determine, okay, it is what degree of ankle restriction. And then based off of history and conversation, some people have limited ankle mobility because of what's called a bony block. So the talus can actually be shifted forward in the ankle joint, and then they're going to have restriction and they could stretch their calves, roll their feet, you know, do every sort of soft tissue mobilization that they know. And they're like, I'm stretching my calves. Why is it not improving? And it's actually that that bone shifted forward. So it's more osseous. Right. So I teach them and there's an easy banded mobilization. Um, again, it's on our YouTube. If you're doing this banded mobilization, there's a, a strong specificity to it. So there's little kind of details you want to follow. But if you get that talus to sit back in the joints, then the ankle is centered and you can move through it again that you don't have to compensate through it. So that's why I would kind of start to look for it. Mm -hmm. um, for, for yours standing kind of out, I would want to understand 
Is that a compensation to you trying to find stability in the pelvis, which it kind of sounds like it is, mm-hmm. right? So when we roll to the outside of our foot, you're going to create external rotation in the hips. And then that's going to slightly tuck the pelvis and engage the glutes, which creates stability in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a very similar strategy is that I will tend to roll to the outside and I totally know that I'm doing it. So it can create just a little bit of a tuck in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. My default posture is I was a gymnast for 13 years. So it's very lordotic just because okay. <laughs> so you get it. right? So there are massive years of programming in the posture system based on the certain sports. So it's actually really important for me to know what sport someone did when they were a teenager and they might be seeing me at 60 years old. Like I need the whole history. So then that can be okay. If your issue is in your feet, but it's actually a compensation to create stability higher up, I need to fix your pelvis, not your feet. Mm-hmm. And that's as a podiatrist, sometimes people are surprised that I'm talking to them about how to address pelvic issues when they're like, wait, you're a foot doctor. Why are you way up here? Right. But they're so connected. Um, and that that's honestly why I love the work that I do because everyone is unique and it's like a little mystery for everyone. <laughs> yeah. It's a puzzle. It's always a puzzle. And I feel like there's, there's probably very common underlying themes that you see a lot, but everybody's just a little different. Like it's just a little tweak that's different because of their background or an injury or whatever. Um, do you, ever then sort of refer clients out also to like a, a pelvic health therapist or like physio? Um, do you like work in tandem with, with other professionals like that? Or is that something that you, it, they may not need it because you are functional and you kind of understand the whole system? Like, how does that work in terms of maybe working with other professionals too, based on their issue? No, I'm a strong believer in team approach. Um, I'm kind of the gatekeeper and I am referred patients to rule out other things, um, to have it be determined. Okay. It's their relationship with the ground. It's their relationship to the timing of the perception of the ground or something like that. And then I will integrate, um, acupuncturists, uh, physical therapists or acupuncturists who do dry needling. Um, so I'm a big fan of that pelvic floor. Yes. If it's appropriate, especially if they need manual release work. So they need to have a specialist going in and doing some of the release work. Uh, I do give a lot of physical therapy or the programming to the patient. And then they have to do it themselves because a lot of this neuromuscular reprogramming has to be done every single day, a couple times a day for six to eight weeks before I can add another layer to it. So it's just that consistency and seeing me once a week or going to physical therapist twice a week is not enough for someone that has a chronic compensation pattern. It's, it's a little dose every day. Um, but yes, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this, this team approach. I'm not a body worker, so I don't do any manual releasing. I am a good assessor and diag- diagnoser. And the one part that I do for patients is anything regenerative because I also do regenerative medicine. So that I do on them. Others, I try to kind of integrate the team. And what is that exactly, regenerative medicine, in, as far as your work? Yeah, so PRP, I'm sure the listeners okay. have heard of PRP, right? PRP, stem cells, growth factors, um, exosomes, things like that. This whole space of regenerative medicine gives the building blocks to the body to repair chronic stress to tissue. And that's the other part that just is like a side pearl for your listeners is if you've been dealing with an issue long-term, um, I'll, I'll talk about plantar fasciitis because it's the easiest or the most common. Say you've had this recurring heel pain for on and off five years, right? And it's determined that the issue is actually your pelvis is not stable. So we go through this whole program to build stability in your pelvis, your pelvic floor, your diaphragm, you know, foot to core, all of that. And People think that, well, that's the solution. That's what caused it, right? But if I go back down to that fascia that's been irritated for five years and I look at it under a microscope, it is degenerated. 
it is um, necrotic, there's hypoxia, there's a lot of, you know, chronic inflammation there. So it's something that I need to get that tissue healthy again, and then fix the proximal instability. Mm -hmm. Um, And typically where I started seeing this is that patients would go to someone who would do this, you know, pelvic stabilization, they appreciated everything that we're talking about. And they say, okay, we need to just fix the stability issue. Your core is not stable. Right. And then they would do that for, for a year and they would still get this waxing, waning heel pain and then be so frustrated and then come to me and I say, okay, it's not that that was wrong. It's just the timing of addressing with that was not appropriate. We need to first put the fire out and get your tissue to be young and healthy again. And then we can do this over here. Um, So that's part of my practice as well. So it's sort of like, I liken it to like the gut health story, right? It's like, you can give people probiotics and tell them to eat the right things. But if their actual gut is damaged, you need to fix that before any of this other stuff is really going to have a tangible effect. Yeah. Okay. Um, another quick footwork question, because we are going into the summer, some places, some people listening always live in warm weather, but for some of us, the sun is just starting to come out and it's very exciting. Are flip-flops really bad and should they be avoided forever? Yeah. Um, so sorry. So I live in Arizona where it's almost always hot. <laughs> so one of the ones that, uh, you probably are like, ah, oh, it's not fair. And, uh, I have sandals on. <laughs> okay. So I'm wearing the shoe that you're talking about, okay. which is, I know shame on me, <laughs> quick, easy. I'm, I'm actually barefoot 99% of the time in my office and home. Okay. So I'm wearing them like 10 minutes during the day, but for general, um, when we wear a shoe that is not attached to our foot, so it's not the flip-flop, it's not the slide. I'm not blaming one of them. I'm blaming them all. Okay. So if a shoe is not connected to your foot and you go through the gait cycle with your leg behind you in late mid stance, and you pick up your foot to swing it through, unless you do something like contract your digits and pick it up and hold yes. it, yes. or people will actually kind of do something like this. It's like an egg beater rotation at the knee joint, um, then, or they shuffle. You got to do something. There's a compensation pattern that's in there because of shoes that are not attached to your feet. Right. So that's my issues with flip-flops and slides. And again, I know I wear them. So shame on me, shame on me, but you know, it is what it is. But the poison's kind of in the dose here. Like if you are, like you said, if you're trying to be barefoot as much as possible, if you're doing the the work and the exercises and all of this stuff, I mean, because again, it's sort of like, I keep relating it back to food, but it's like, we're never going to like never eat uh, junk food again. Maybe we like our cookies or our pizza or whatever. It's about like the consistency and doing the right thing most of the time. Yeah. So well said. So well said. Okay. Thank you for (laughs) for saying that as as far as my footwear. Let you off the hook. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you. So can individuals work with you remotely or do they have to, do you have to see them physically, you know, at least at the beginning? Yeah, no, actually a majority of my patients are virtual and they were virtual even before COVID. And that's just because of kind of the niche practice that I've built is people would have a hard time uh, before COVID. I was practicing in New York city for 10 years that they would have a hard time getting to New York. So it was a way that I saw them. Uh, So people can definitely reach out. And I see patients um, virtually in person in Arizona. When I see a patient, uh, I spend an hour with every patient so that I can be very detailed in what I do. And then I provide very detailed, personalized plans that come out of that. Some of them may integrate, okay, see an acupuncturist or see XYZ to kind of weave in and together we do this, or it's giving them the activation work, the mobilization work, the breath work, and then they do that consistently on their own. Um, And most of the patients knock on wood that I see are very compliant because they have typically seen many other specialists and they're coming at with a slight level of frustration or like, I need an answer, or I've been told, I don't know, or, you know, so I try to give that perspective. Yeah. And 
is it, you know, in an ideal world, are we talking like someone will come and do like sort of the initial assessment with you, you will give them a plan, they come back to you, what, like a couple weeks later, and then every few, like, how does the ongoing kind of relationship work? Yeah, so for any programming that I give, and this is just in general, it's going to take six to eight weeks, right? And I say, you know, it's not six to eight weeks from today, us having our appointment, it's six to eight weeks from when you start everything that I'm recommending to you. So if it takes you a couple of weeks to get everything together, you, I can't see you until you've done six consistent weeks, every single day, X, Y, Z, and then we move forward. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they don't, because <laughs> I get it. Life gets in the way you travel, something like that. And then I'll say, we have to, gotta start again. And then it has to, to move forward. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, if they're if they're not consistent, um, then they're just not going to get better. And I've, I've tried to help a few patients with um, foot pain, which is how I get to them. But they then have groin issues. So I see a lot of groin imbalances, adductor pelvic floor, just that whole area. And you have to be very, very consistent in the way that you address anterior pubic imbalances mm -hmm. or anterior pelvis imbalances. And a majority of people are not patient enough to do it, which yeah. means they then kind of keep going back and then it just kind of cycles. Um, and this also with pelvic floor as well, it's hard to kind of understand because there's such small muscles yeah. that you will be consistent for a minute. And then you kind of get frustrated. You want to go back to running, you know, pre-pregnancy and things like that. And then they try to fast track it. Um, or another one is that when I give activation exercises, I typically only want them at 20% contraction. So that whole toes down pelvic floor exhale, we were just saying, hello, right? 20%. Hello. I had a patient last week and she's like, I know you said 20%. Your videos say 20%. I'm type A. I did it hundred percent. And now she's like flared up. And I was like, I told you <laughs> like, there's a reason, right? It is so hard to unlearn that concept of if some is good, more must be better. It's really hard to do that. And the more you're talking, the more I'm feeling like we, we can talk offline. Cause I think I, I would like to work with you if you have any availability. Yeah, I absolutely. do. I, I really feel like it is a, a pelvic floor thing. Like, I feel like I had kind of, I was lucky in my postpartum experience, because like I said, I saw a pelvic PT in my pregnancy and I was doing all this work and all this breathing and core work, because I was like, again, I'm like a type A athlete, like everybody else. I was like, I'm not peeing when I work out. Okay. That's not in my future. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to stand for that. And I've managed to avoid most, I would say of the like common pelvic floor issues postpartum. But I do believe that my pregnancy and, and delivery and all of that has kind of highlighted or brought to the fore some imbalances that I have that I can't just keep kind of sweeping under the rug. And I feel like if I can actually, yeah, like have a professional kind of talk me through some things to do and, and like a, a maintenance or, or progressive plan that I will basically, you kind of have to take it with you for the rest of your life. Right. I mean, it's not like it's something you can do for eight weeks and then you're like all done. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's the other part is that for certain patients, I will say, I need you to look at what I'm telling you as part of a lifestyle. You brush your teeth, you floss. That's a lifestyle, right? You take your vitamins or you drink, you know, however many ounces of water every day. It's a lifestyle and it's a decision that you are making for the long term. It's an investment in your movement, longevity, your health, things like that. We're being proactive versus reactive. Um, so, yeah, they are small little kind of tweaks. The one thing that I will mention, which is really interesting about pregnancy, and I apologize for the men, but if you have female clients, it's, mm -hmm. it's beneficial, is that it is definitely like all lights are shut off. And I remember after I gave birth, I could not even do an elbow on my knee, knees and elbow plank. plank. I was like, it literally like, I'm like trying to contract the TBA. And it was like, I'm like, it's not working. I can't do it. Right. It's not. So I had to be extremely progressive with how I did it and consistent in the whole way that we were speaking. The funny thing is, that then when I finally, about a year, a year later after I gave birth, I started doing aerials again. And now today I am stronger nice. than I was before I gave birth. And I'm 40, 41, almost 42. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I feel like I'm even stronger than I was when I was a gymnast because of just 
reconnecting to those foundational stabilizers and, you know, my upper body strength, like pull-ups and all of that is pelvic floor related. And it kind of forced me to go back to the beginning and lay that foundation. Um, So something like giving birth or an injury can be very eye-opening to go back. Um, And I even find in professional athletes that get injured, become the most appreciative of sensory stimulation, barefoot, vibration, naboso. Like they just want all of that proprioception. They just really get that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's good. I love to hear that though, because it's, I think it's sometimes you need something as life-changing as an injury or a pregnancy to force you to kind of bring that awareness. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because my, in my postpartum, um, recovery and working out. And I felt like I was being very, very like slow and safe about it, but coming back and trying to do like a push up, like I, I love upper body stuff. Like I created a, a program to help women get pull-ups because I'm so, I feel so strongly about that. And I was trying to do regular push-ups, which normally are no problem for me, but the core strength you need to do like a plank position. It was crazy. And like doing pull-ups. I mean, I thought I was going to be doing pull-ups until I was nine months pregnant. Like I had all of these fanciful ideas. <laughs> and, you know, I remember as soon as I started getting a belly, like I was like 22 weeks, 26 weeks, and I tried to do it. And I felt like the coning and I felt the weirdness in my core. It's amazing what you take for granted when you kind of can just get by without paying attention to these things. But I think we all hit a point, whether it's age or injury or pregnancy or whatever it is, we're like, okay, we actually have to care about this. And I think that the sooner people do care about it, don't wait until you have to, don't wait until it's a crisis. Like anybody listening, you could be 18 and somehow perfectly injury-free and this is still intelligent um, stuff for you to be focusing on. So um, yeah, I hope people listen to this and like think about it, maybe space out their toes while they're (laughs) listening to the podcast or something because it's a good idea. Thank you so much for the time. This has been amazing. It's been so, so useful. And I feel like I have some real like tangible stuff I can go back and work on before I even talk to you uh, separately. But can you tell our listeners where they can go? You mentioned uh, YouTube videos with lots of information. Like where are some places that folks can go to learn more about you and what you do? Yeah. So on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com backslash EBFA fitness. That's actually my education company's YouTube channel. There's over 200 videos on there. Um, But if you also just go to YouTube and search my name, you will see a a huge library of exercises, educational videos. Uh, I'm on Instagram at DREmilyDPM. And like you had mentioned, I put a lot of content out there trying to educate people on feet and the integrated function of the feet. Uh, and then finally, my podiatry practice is just my name. So dremilysplickle.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes because it'll be hard to spell, yep. but you can go there. Uh, and yeah, if no one remembers any of that, just Google Dr. Emily Barefoot and you will get lots of great stuff. Perfect. And you are taking clients, as you said, so folks can, yeah. okay, great. Yeah. Cause we could all use it. All right. Dr. Emily Spickle, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. I'm going to go down a YouTube rabbit hole and uh, I'll send you an email separately. We'll see what we can get done. And maybe, you know, when we, if we can work together and, and work on some stuff, maybe I could have you back on like after a certain period and we can kind of talk about my process. I think that might be cool. It might be helpful for people. Maybe again, maybe they don't care about my personal issues, but it might be a cool experiment to show sort of like the process of like learning and what I did and how it impacted me. So maybe that's something I could, I could bring you back if you're interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. And people learn from hearing about other people. So like a case study is actually extremely beneficial and educational. So uh, I think it's interesting. I'm sure your listeners as are listening right now is like, yes, do it. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. I think, I think I got a lot of health nerds that listen to this podcast. I think they would be into it. So um, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I appreciate it as always. I don't know if you guys were, you know, clenching or trying to feel your feet on the floor while you were listening to this podcast. I don't know if you guys are walking or exercising or what you're doing while you're listening. Uh, I was doing all of the above. And I'll tell you another thing when I was done speaking with her, the first thing I did was 
when I saw my baby take the socks off of his feet, you know, I live in a cold place, so I'm, I'm covering him up a lot, which I hate um, because as soon as it gets warmer, I want to take all his clothes off, his socks, have him just completely rolling around in the dirt and the mud. I just think that we should all be trying to do that a little bit more. Um, but I'm really excited to work with Dr. Emily and see if I can get some things sorted out in my frame and in my feet because I don't know how many of us make it into our 30s without some structural biomechanical problems, but I certainly didn't make it unscathed. I've got some some issues I'm working on, so I'll keep you posted. I am really looking forward to, um, to working with her and, and trying to fix some of these issues. So that's it. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by my friends over at Bioptimizers. They make the only probiotic and digestive enzymes products that I use, as well as an amazing magnesium product that I use every night before I go to bed. Um, after using their probiotic and their digestive enzyme products um, in the beginning of the pandemic, when I was having some stress-related, I think, digestive issues, I noticed a significant improvement since then. I have been giving these products to family and friends who are having maybe some similar digestive issues, um, energy issues, things like that. And truly, the, re the responses and the results have been nothing short of incredible. Um, and I really wouldn't speak so highly about these products if I didn't feel really personally impressed and changed by them. Um, so I highly, highly recommend, I haven't talked to anybody who has used these products that haven't, hasn't noticed an improvement. Um, so if you want to head to their website, um, it's buyoptimizers.com. You can use the code MUSCLEMAVEN for a discount. Um, I post about them all the time. If you have any questions about any of their products, you can reach out to me. Um, I'm basically a pro at this point. So thank you to Buy Optimizers. Thank you to you guys. If you love this podcast, if you want me to keep doing it, I would love for your feedback. I would love for you to rate and review and share it with someone you think could benefit because that's what it's here for. So that's it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Appreciate you guys. And I'll talk to you soon.